In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to be talking about boots, three season sleeping bag choices, carbon steel knives and flint for sparks, skinning your knuckles when using a fire steel, long distance hiking, lightweight gear and bushcraft, and how do you know when you know enough, as well as talking through a canoe survival scenario. Welcome, welcome to episode 38 of Ask Paul Kirtley, the question and answer show where I answer your questions on wilderness bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life. And you can tell from my little pre-reel run-through of what we're gonna be talking about today, there's quite a lot to get through. And this is something for you to answer me. Um, I used to, answer about five questions per show and I'm doing one show a week and I'm just not getting through the questions so I've tried to up the number a little bit to six seven eight questions sometimes some of them require slightly longer answers than others and those of you that have been long time viewers of this show will know that I don't spend a lot of time prepping for these I think that's part of the value of this I'm not giving some pithy polished answer that has been thought about you know for hours and rehash it's this is what i think right now right here based on my experience this is how i would deal with this this is how i'd make this decision this is how i would choose to do this this is how i would choose this equipment for the scenario that you're thinking about and in me going through my thinking to get to that point, you understand my thinking as well. And it was like last last week, um, we were talking about birch bark and taking bark off trees. And here is a, an instance of a piece of birch that is dead, it's broken, it's rotten, the bark's still in good condition, and people have been taking the bark off here. And there have been some other um, people, as I say, taking it off, but there's plenty for other people to, to take it from there as well. There's lots left. And last week I could have just said, no, don't take bark from standing trees, take it from dead trees. That would have been a very short answer, but you would not have had the insight into my thinking. So as to why I've got to that point and the, th the thinking around it, the same with, you know, what else have we talked about recently, where to camp in terms of temperature, um, bedding materials, um, bow drill cho choice of bow drill materials, all sorts of things. I like to try and explain the thinking and the rationale around because th these things often don't have black and white answers either. So I'm very reluctant to cut down to just giving black and white answers. But the problem is that the shows are, it's a problem for some people, um, that the shows are a little bit long and I don't get to the point quickly enough. And so my question for you is, I, I think personally, I answer the questions in the way that I answer them, and that works for most people. It works for the people that are really interested to hear the answers. Um, you know, the, the viewing numbers on these videos is never going to be hundreds of thousands of people. It's gonna be the dedicated um, 
people who really want to know the in-depth answers and they don't just want sort of pat answers. And I really appreciate that. And I appreciate that you give the time over to listening. And so I would be reluctant to do more than one a week, even though I'm not getting through the questions because that's just, I'm asking more of your time. Um, and I want to be respectful of your time as viewers and listeners, but equally, I'm also conscious that it's quite a lot, you know, 45 minutes, an hour. Last week was like an hour and 20. Um, it's a lot for you to get through. And I know some people like to go through in, um, in several sittings. It works all right on a podcast if you've got an MP3 player that stops and starts off again where you finish. But if you're watching on YouTube, I know that can be a bit difficult to come back to it in the same place. So my question for you is, would you prefer um, six questions answered in an hour or would you prefer three questions answered in 30 minutes but two a week? What would you prefer? It's a bit more work for me to do two a week, frankly, but you've got to let me know. That's a question. I'll remind you the question at the end. And again, I'm giving you my thinking around why I'm asking you the question, not just the question because you know we have an intelligent conversation then and I think that's one of the good things about this show the people who follow it the people who comment on it the people sending the questions it's an intelligent conversation and that's even if there's only four of us um, <laughs> there are more than four people out there watching and listening but um, you get the point I'm making I'd rather have a high quality conversation with a high quality audience than trying to make it more shiny for more people. So that's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking, how do I make this more popular? I'm asking, what do you think works for you? Um, do you think the current format is good or would we be better off making it slightly shorter, but putting them out more often? Let me know. Let me know. I won't necessarily do either, <laughs> but I'm trying to work out what works best for, for everyone. Okay, let me know. I'll, I'll remind you at the end. But without further ado. Ah, I've gone. This is one for the, uh, this is one for the bloopers at the end. I seem to have gone back to <laughs> previous episodes, questions. Hold on. Do, do, do. Search 38. Here we go. Right. Back in the room. Boots. This is a question from Mercia or Mercia. Apologies for not answer, for not pronouncing your name. Um, in Romania, Mercia or Mercia. Um, his question. Or her question, I'm assuming it's a he. Um, Mercy's question is, thank you for sharing your knowledge on bushcraft. I enjoy watching your videos on YouTube. To the point, my question is, you spoke about clothing. How about boots or footwear? What do you prefer wearing in the bush and how do, you how do your choices change with the weather? Greetings from Romania. Well, um, most of the time I wear uh, these boots that I'm wearing today, which are the lower military boots with the Gore-Tex lining. Um, these are my go-to work boots, as, as, if you like. I wear them a fair amount for hiking around in the woods. I wear them um, when I'm working. It's often damp and muddy. 
in the woods in the UK and even through the summer I'm often wearing these boots. Now I think the next time I replace these, this is the third set of lowers I've had in the last 15 years, um, the next time I replace these I think I'm going to go to an unlined version, so one without a Gore-Tex lining because in the last two pairs I've had it's been the Gore-Tex lining that has worn out before the rest of the boots. The rest of the boots could have gone on for longer. Um, and also this summer, um, even though it's been a bit wet at times, it's been quite warm and dry and my feet have been really quite sweaty at times. And I could take an extra set of boots when I'm working and I can change into them. But, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in doing close to home what you do further afield and when you go on trips you can't take a whole wardrobe of different choices with you you have to choose things and make them work under different circumstances and if they don't work under different circumstances then maybe you need to choose something else so um for sort of most of the year these boots work very well for me um but i think particularly given um waterproof sock technology mem you know good wool socks with a membrane in them have actually come on the sealskin socks now are very good um, i'm thinking that i'd like to separate the two to have the membrane when i want it but not at other times and have a good quality leather boot with a leather lining and yes that's not the lightest option i know the lightweight freaks are going to go oh you should be wearing something lighter than that and um yes from a hiking perspective i'd agree with you and if i'm doing some mountain hikes i'll probably wear a lighter weight fabric boot i have lighter weight fabric boots with really grippy fibrum soles that are grippier than these um that i would wear like on the Scot scottish 4000s i wore some garment tower gtx boots which i liked a lot um, apart from the fact they were just a little bit too small for me and caused me some problems with pinching on my toes but in terms of the weight really like them in terms of the grip really liked them um, and that's the type of boot that i favor now for that sort of summer spring summer autumn backpacking hiking in the mountains backpacking trails that's the sort of thing that I would like to wear I also like my approach shoes my Haglofts approach shoes that I've been wearing a lot in the last couple of years probably with a favorite um, sort of trainer like outdoor shoes I've ever had I really like those and I will hike in those I'll do light hiking I'll do day hikes in the mountains I'll do um, trail hikes with just short trail hikes in those I like them I've got strong enough legs that and stability in my ankles I don't need you know lots of stabilization from the boots so I'll wear those sometimes but um, lighter weight footwear is great for that but when I'm clomping around working in the woods carrying logs stepping over things walking through bogs walking through streams um, you know all of that heavy work and you know near fires and kneeling down a lot to give demonstrations of making feather sticks and bow drill and all that I want a pair of boots that's really durable and that is easy to maintain and that takes me back to a relatively heavy leather pair of boots and the military boots um, the lower military boots are very good but as I say the Gore-Tex lining for me now I'd like to separate it out part of that thinking has come from using Lundhag boots and um, I use Lundhag boots in the winter I've moved over to Jornkangen boots now but basically having 
or everything separable has always been something which has appealed. So you've got the boot, but then you've got a felt liner if you need a, a membrane in there as well, for whatever reason you can put them in. And then I've started wearing some go, um, unlined um, boots from Lundhags as well for uh, some of the things that I do in Scotland and um, the professional uh, high boot, now that, it, they're, now that they're broken in, they were a bit problematic to start off with. They chewed my feet up in various places where the rubber joins the leather on those Lundhag boots. But now that they're broken in, I really like them. They're not too heavy um, they're very supportive, um, but they're not as waterproof as you'd imagine. But I found combining them with a seal skin high leg waterproof sock um, keeps the moisture um, out and keeps it in the boot but not in my feet um, and I found that just wearing a very thin merino liner combined with the seal skin socks is a fantastic combination because one of the problems with the seal skin socks of course is that they're quite heavy and bulky for what they are and you don't you want to be able to change your socks, but you don't want to be carrying multiple, multiple pairs of sealskins. So not least of which because they're expensive, but also um, just the weight and the bulk. So I found wearing a thin merino liner means that you can change the sock that's in immediate contact with your foot more regularly. You've got the membrane sock, which is, which is good, it keeps your feet warm and dry, keeps the moisture out. You don't need to wear it if you don't want to. You can wear a regular sock rather than the, the sealskin sock. And also, the, the, as is the case always when you're wearing a liner sock and, a, and an outer sock, the, the socks move around relative to each other and you're less likely to get blisters. So I found that the Lundhags Professional High with a sealskin high leg sock with the membrane in and a merino inner is a fantastic combination as well, particularly in boggy ground. Um, so boggy, lumpy, tussock grass, sphagnum moss in Scotland when I'm doing some deer stalking, for example, that works really well. Equally, I've tried variations of that um, in Sweden as well, in the north of Sweden, in the late summer and into the autumn. Again, very boggy, sphagnum moss, skog, bog and um, for those of you that know what I'm talking about um, yeah just that low-lying wet ground and that those Lundhag boots with the seal skin and the um, and the merino liner are a really good solution to that as well for keeping your feet dry and blister free and comfortable once the boots are worn in so my thinking overall is for forest use in the type of the type of stuff that I'm doing is a um, in the winter, 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 in the cold winter, I, I prefer Yornkangens or the, the winter um, Lundhags, felt liner, felt insole, thick socks. Um, I carry some seal, big seal skins for emergencies in case the boot gets wet if I go into overflow or into water that's on top of the ice. Um, most of the year I like in the UK, in the northern temperate, I like the uh, the lower military, but next time I think I'm going to separate the Gore-Tex from the boot and have the option of combining them in different ways. And for really boggy temperate zone, um, but still a relatively lightweight um, boot, I am really liking the Lundhag Professional High 
with the sealskin sock and the merino liner. So that's where I'm at at the moment with my thinking for boots in general for the forest. Then for mountain hiking, I like a lightweight fabric boot with a very grippy sole or even just an approach shoe with a very grippy sole. Those are my, those are my preferences at the moment. So hopefully that helps. And again, explaining my thinking, not just the answers. Okay, three season sleeping bag choice. This is from Piers Hall and he asks, um, well, he says, thank you so much for doing the Aspel Curtis shows. You have well and truly inspired me to get into bushcraft and the amount I've learned in a relatively short time is all praise to you. Well, thank you, Piers. That's very heartening for me to hear. And that's the kind of feedback, the oxygen, the nutrition that I need to keep on doing that. If I know it's making a difference, if I know I'm helping people, if I know I'm adding value to their outdoor life, then that is the sustenance that I need. And a few people in recent weeks have said, how can I pay you for doing the shows? Can I contribute? Can I send you some money via PayPal? Are you setting up some sort of way for, for donating? No, not at all. I do this because I like helping people. Um, and I do have, if you, I do have some, of, some of what I do, let me phrase it this way, some of what I do you have to pay for. If you want to come and do a course with me in the woods, you have to pay for it. If you, um, that's just the economics of it. Yeah? Um, if you want to do a trip with me, a wilderness trip, you're going to have to pay for that. You know, that costs us a lot to run you know, in terms of hiring canoes or float planes or whatever it is. If you want to do a wilderness trip with me, there is a cost involved and I need to pay for insurance. It's going to cost. Um, some of my premium online training, there is a cost involved. It costs us a lot of money to produce it. It costs us a lot of money to host it. Um, and it's very high quality and you have to pay for that. Everything else, 95% of the material I put on the internet is for free and it always will be. Um, and I want my free stuff to be really, really good and for people to get value from it. I don't believe in people having to pay for this material and I don't want people to pay for it. If you want to pay me back at some point, come and do a course with me, send me a book, something that you've written, you know, that sort of thing, fantastic. But otherwise, I don't, you know, you don't need to. So, but thank you for the office. And it's all I need is, you know, occasionally for people to say that it's adding value and I know it is, and then that's, that's worthwhile. And I'm not being disingenuous there. Yeah, I'm not being disingenuous. I'm not doing this for any other reason than I want to help people. I was getting all of these questions anyway. I was struggling to answer them one-on-one -on, -one on email. And I thought if I answer them this way, then at least more than one person potentially is going to get benefit from them. And that's, that's why I do it. So thank you um, for the offers. And I really, really appreciate it. Anyway, back to Piers's question. Okay, the question I have is about sleeping bags. <laughs> yes, I know you hate kick questions and can see you rolling your eyes as you read this. But I'm really confused with a huge choice available and the price prices range, uh, the price range is massive. Can't afford a down bag, that's for sure, and looking for a three-person rating to keep size and weight down. I'd really appreciate your help with making a good choice as I don't want to make the same mistake as I did when I first getting into bushcraft with jackets, blowing a small fortune on what I thought was the best for me and realizing it wasn't. I'm sorry it's a kick question, but I would really appreciate your guidance. Keep up the excellent work and inspiring more people like me. All the best, peers. 
Okay, Piers. I don't know where you are, Piers. I can't tell from your email address. Yes, it's a .com email address. Um, I could probably look the IP up that you sent it from, but not here, I can't. Um, I'm going to assume that you're in the UK, Piers, so apologies if you're not. Um, three season bag, not down. So it's going to be three season synthetic bag. You've got a couple of choices, um, just off the top of my head. Um, Snug Pack makes some very good uh, synthetic bags, and you've got two broad choices with their bags, ones that are made in the UK and ones that are not made in the UK. The ones that are not made in the UK are cheaper. They are, I don't think they're quite as good quality as the ones that are made in the UK in my experience, but they are considerably cheaper. And you can have a look at those. So you've got two price brackets there. One of them, the, one of the cheaper ones, um, which I think is actually quite good that I've used. It is a three season bag, but it it's pushing it a little bit on the coldest autumn and spring days is the travel pack three it is meant to be a sort of backpacking gap year bag and um, it's got a sewn-in mosquito net i did a little review of it probably two years ago now it might even be three years ago on my blog and you can find the article i'll link it in the show notes that is something to look at um, that's really quite inexpensive some of the other snug pack bags, particularly the ones that are aimed at the military, um, the synthetic bags are good and highly recommended. And then you could also just walk into Cotswolds, um, maybe even Blacks, and find some of the Van Gogh bags, synthetic bags, which I have bought when I've done private functions, so private courses for, for groups, and they've asked me to source kit for them as well. Um, you know, I did some, uh, not exactly team building, I did some leadership development courses for some chief executives a while ago. And um, chief executives being chief executives, um, wanted the kit sourced for them as well. We bought these Van Gogh bags for them, these Van Gogh sleeping bags that came from Cotswolds and uh, Cotswold Outdoors, and they were very good. They were bright red, which is a bit, you know, garing, uh, garish against the green of the bivy bags, which we supplied them with as well, but they worked. People stayed warm in them. Um, the execs took the bags home with them and they liked them. And um, that was part of the deal. Um, and they worked very well. So, you know, People who were quite discerning and weren't used to camping were quite happy camping out in them. They stayed warm and they took them back with them um, for their use or for their kids' use. So um, those Van Gogh bags were good as well. So I'd say have a look at the Snug Pack or the Van Gogh bags, synthetic bags, relatively inexpensive. And because they're made in large numbers, they, they, the economies of scale are there. So you're getting quite good, you know, you're getting good quality synthetic bags for not a huge amount of money. So that's where I'd be looking. And apologies if you're further afield. Um, if there's anybody, uh, let's leave it at that. If you're not in the UK and those brands or, or, or where you can access those brands, let me know and we'll do a version two because I'm sure that information was useful to somebody. But if you're further afield and we need to reframe the question for brands in other parts of the world, we can do that in a round two. But I'm hoping that will help. So let me know, Piers. All right, moving swiftly on because time is pressing on. This is a question from 
Jack McCormack, and we've had questions from Jack in the past. Um, his next question is regarding carbon steel, knives, and flint and steel. And uh, this is quite a long question, so I'm going to read it quickly. Um, apologies. I have a high carbon steel knife, which I have found to be the best metal. Um, Dave Canterbury advocates that a knife should be high carbon steel so that it can be used as a steel when struck with a piece of flint to ignite charred materials, char cloth or natural such as punk wood or fungi. I have started using this method and I found it very easy and my knife has since replaced my steel striker. Yet flint and steel remains the most common method that I use to start my fires when in the woods. What is your opinion on doing so? Have you tried this before and do you think there are any advantages or disadvantages to using your carbon steel knife spine over a steel striker? I have done some reading and found that the long hunters of northeastern America did exactly this. Many thanks, Jack. Um, so there's lots of thoughts that spring to mind there, Jack, but keeping it relatively concise. First off, um, yeah, I mean, a knife or a striker, if it's the right type of steel, will create sparks with a piece of flint. The classic knife to, to, you know, to do it with was, you know, your sort of granddad's type folding pen knife. They always worked well with a piece of flint to create sparks and they, they still do. I mean, over time, you're going to wear it very, very slightly. Um, just, you know, the, the steel strikers that we have here, um, at Frontier Bushcraft, I'm at one of the Frontier Bushcraft sites. Um, the the steel strikers that we use on courses here, um, we use them a lot. You know, they get used on all of our basic courses, whether they're one day, two day, six day courses in one form or another. They get used for something on those courses, and they get used by hundreds of people. And they, over time, they do wear a little bit, but that's hundreds of strikes. You know, people try multiple times, you know, getting the hang of the technique and they last a long time. And that's just a small steel striker. So they do last. So I think the amount of wear and tear that you're going to put on your knife is minimal because you're going to be quite, um, you're going to be quite adept at creating the sparks because you're well practiced with the basic technique and you're going to be careful with your kit. So I can't see any problem with doing that at all um, and as long as you're careful with not you know cutting yourself by not concentrating on the cutting edge while you're doing something else with it then that's fine as well so i can't see a problem with that um, the the other the other question i mean if you carry a piece of flint fine but i would always carry something else as well if you're going to carry something to light a fire i agree flint and steel is while it's a traditional method, it's quite an old-fashioned method in some people's eyes, it's remarkably reliable as long as you've got something that will catch the spark. It is very, very good. It's a very good way of lighting a fire. And, but I would still carry something else because um, charred, as you say, you need some charred material typically. And if that gets wet through atmospheric moisture or through um, submersion, um, if you fall in water, if your kit falls in water, if it rains and things get wet, or even if it's just really damp sometimes, char cloth can, can struggle to catch a spark. Um, you, might, you, might, you might struggle and clearly in those dampest of conditions or when you're wet or your kit's wet, that's when you really need a fire. So 
if you're choosing to carry things with you to light fire, I would be carrying some sort of secondary backup, a modern fire steel or a mat matches in a watertight container, something that, or, or a cigarette lighter or a Zippo or something that is going to allow you to have a backup because you're choosing to take something with you anyway. Um, it, for those people who think, well, having a high carbon steel knife, that's great and I can just pick up a piece of flint and light a fire whenever I need to. Um, Unless you're in very specific places, you're not going to find flint, particularly not on the surface. Um, you might find it on some coastal areas, you might find it exposed on the surface in some places. A lot of people think flint is more common than it is because they see it on tracks, but often that is filled in, that's infill, it's material that's been brought from somewhere else. And so um, it's not always as often, it's not often as, as, um, as, uh, available as you think and I'm just thinking of another circumstances where I another circumstance where I saw a lot of flint recently but that was in a ploughed field where the farmer had turned the field over and lots of bits of flint but that again you're not going to be in an emergency fire lighting situation when there's a farmer's field there because you're going to be close to the farm you're going to be close in, in in the environment here in western europe i know there are some places where there are massive farms and they're more you know you're going to be a long way away but where you're going to find flint is few and far between and even i can't remember which one of dave canterbury's videos it is i've seen some of them but i remember watching one in particular where he was talking he's put out so many now but it was one of his five c's or ten c's or seven pieces of kit or something and it would have been five years ago at least there was one where i remember particularly him talking about the value of carrying a cutting tool um, and cordage and a few of the bits and pieces and i remember him saying in that particularly it's completely unrealistic to think that you are going to find a good quality piece of flint on the surface and be able to nap it into a knife, so carry a knife. And I completely agree with that. It's com it makes complete sense to me. So um, don't rely on being able to find a piece of flint, even if you're carrying a carbon steel knife that is able to create sparks on a piece of flint. Yeah, sure, that's a bonus if you do find it, but you're probably going to have to, if you're going to use that method of fire lighting, you're going to carry a piece of flint with you along with your carbon steel striker or your carbon steel knife. And in which case you're choosing to take equipment with you, I would choose to take something else as well as a backup because while it's very, very reliable to get the sparks, you're dependent upon being able to drop that spark onto something. And that, and those some things are normally quite um, sensitive to moisture and therefore I would have something else. Like I'm sat on this birch log here. Um, you're not going to light this, this birch bark with a flint and steel, but you will light it with a modern fire steel. You will light it with a, with a cigarette lighter as long as that's not too wet. That water in cigarette lighters can be problematic and you'll also light it with a match. So um, as long as you kept your matches dry in a watertight container. And I'm not saying you can't do that with char cloth. It's just that it's good to have a backup. So while we're talking about those decisions so yeah i can't see a problem in what you're doing um but again that you know carry carry things in threes um have three methods of fire lighting on you if you're going to choose to carry something have three methods and that can be flint and steel or knife your, your steel being the knife um modern fire flash and your knife um and a piece of string for making 
for making a bow drill, that would be three. Um, for example, although your your weakest link there is your knife. If you lose your knife, you can't make a bow drill set. You can't easily get your fire flash to work if you don't have a striker. And if you're using your flint and steel, um, your your steel, uh, the knife is the steel for your flint and steel. If you lose your knife, you've lost a key component of all three uh, methods there. So again, need to think about these things. And there's this. Um, saying that you hear in military circles that it, two is one and one is none. And I think with your fire lighting uh, kit that you really need to think that through. Where is the weakest link? Where is the single point of failure? And make sure there isn't one. Right. Another fire steel question. I think this is somebody that's not so impressed with my big sparks method. Yeah, one from Instagram. And this question is from Nevin M, I think. Never quite sure with Instagram handles because they're all one word. It could be Nev Inim, it could be Nevinum, or it could be Nevin M, not sure. This person has skinned his knuckles. And his question is, is it possible to learn your fire flash and knife technique without shredding one's knuckles? That's the hand holding the flash. Failing to get a hexamine tablet tonight, although I'm starting to get consistent with getting sparks, I find the striker much easier. I'm not sure what you're skinning your knuckles with. If it's your knife you're skinning your knuckles with there, you're doing something quite wrong with a technique because your knife shouldn't be if you're holding your fire steel in your hand it's it's there so i'm wondering if you're skinning your knuckles on a log or something that you're resting on perhaps but i'm, I'm not sure but you shouldn't be bringing anything into contact no different i mean it really isn't any different to using the striker in that sense um, i've seen people cut themselves with the knife because they've slipped off the tip of the fire steel and put the end of the knife, the tip of the knife into the soft fleshy part of their finger, but that's, you're, you're skinning your knuckles. So I'm not quite sure what you're doing. I'm wondering if you're moving your hands too much or pushing with your hands too much inadvertently. That could be, if you're pushing down, maybe you're pushing your knuckles into a log or something that you're resting on. So you don't need to do that. You almost just need to, to float your hand and squeeze with your thumbs. It's, it's a th I know this is a visual thing, and we try not to do visual things um, on, uh, on this because people listen to this as a podcast. I think more people listen to this as a podcast than actually watch it as a video. So I need to be a little bit careful with that. But I will link in the show notes to that original video on YouTube so people can see what I'm talking about. But to, to reiterate the point, it's kind of a squeeze with the fingers. Um, if you take the fire steel, you're holding it in your hand and you're squeezing the knife down. And I'm not resting it on anything here. It does help if you rest it over the, the tinder that you're trying to drop the spark into or the very fine kindling that you're trying to drop the spark into. But you don't need to push a lot with that hand. You shouldn't be skinning your knuckles. The biggest risk is slipping and, and sticking the tip of the knife in your, in your finger here. So um, maybe just have a watch where the movement is in my hand. Go back and watch the video and watch where the movement is. And it, it isn't really in that hand. It's in, it's in that push with the thumbs on the back of the knife. 
And with a hexamine block, if you're struggling with a hexamine block, as long as it's not really, really old and starting to degrade, the best way to get um, a spark into hexi blocks is to take the tip of your knife and shave off one of the corners so you've got a fine dust. Drop the spark into that, then that will light and then light the rest of the block from the burning pile of, of dust that you've created. And then just clean your knife off before you put it back in the sheath or pair any food with it because hexi isn't, hexamine is not very good for you, it's quite toxic. Right, next one. Long distance hiking, lightweight gear and bushcraft. And this is from Alex. Hi Paul, firstly just to offer the customary thank you for your podcast and also the wild wandering posts which are very helpful from the point of view of someone who's trying alone to learn something about tree and plant identification. Well no worries and if people aren't familiar with my wild wanderings photo blogs I'll link to the last couple in the show notes here um, because they're quite fun for me to do and they are unstructured but they're very quick and easy for me to do and um, you know you can as, I, as I'm out and about, I'll take photos of things and then I'll quickly pop those into a blog post when I get the opportunity with most of the description about what's going on in the photo caption. There's very little other text other than maybe just to set the context of where I was and what I was doing at the time. But then the rest is in the photos and I can produce that very, very quickly. The other thing that everybody should follow that's interested in learning more about the, the trees and the plants and the uses is my Instagram feed. And as usual, here's my... Um, Here's my uh, handle, Paul Kirtley, very easy. Follow me on there because I am putting stuff up on there very regularly, little bite-sized nuggets that are seasonal. They're of the time where I am at least, and you can learn with me as you go in little bite-sized chunks. And it complements the um, slightly more cerebral um, stuff that we're doing here. This is a very non-visual format, even though some of it's, you know, some people are watching this on video, whereas the photo blogs, the, the Wild Wanderings photo blogs and the photos I'm putting on Instagram are very visual. So the two go together very, very well. All right. Um, my question is whether you are familiar with Andrew Skirker, the long distance hiker, um, I'm not, I have to say, uh, Alex, but I will look him up. Um, a number of questions that have been fielded have been from people looking to make a distinction between ultralight hiking and bushcraft, and I thought it would be instructive to draw their attention to him. His attitude is that if you are hiking longer distances, you carry only essential clothing and as light a sleeping system as possible, as long as it provides sufficient shelter. He also came to mind as his methods and equipment are relevant to some observations you have made about the use of tarps and also Ray Goodwin's ones about inflatable kayaks. Sorry for the length of the... Of the uh, question but the other week you did ask that people provide some context and yes context is very very useful Alex so um, so no I'm not the quick answer is no I'm not familiar with Andrew but I'll look him up um, I would again just caution people trying to make a distinction between ultralight hiking and bushcraft I don't think you need to make a distinction because I don't think the two things are uh, they're not they're not either mutually exclusive nor are they at all the same thing I think there are two so yes we need to make a distinction because they're not the same thing but I don't think it's if you think about them clearly that you're not confounding them at all if you think about bushcraft at the core of it as being a, a knowledge of nature and a study of nature 
an understanding of the plants, the trees, the animals, the natural signs in terms of natural navigation, where to find water, what materials are useful for fire lighting, what can you make cordage from, where's a good place to put shelter, the lay of the land, all of those sorts of things, that is bushcraft. And yes, you can have some equipment, particularly a knife um, that makes some of the bushcraft skills more uh, easily accessible and more ready, readily applicable, an axe in certain circumstances as well. But then all the other stuff that goes around that, how you are camping and what you're carrying your gear in, that's kind of down to personal choice, what clothing you're wearing, what you're wearing on your feet. Um, you could wear very ultralight weight stuff. You can wear go light stuff. You can read um, some of the make your own um, ultralight backpacking designs. You can make your own gear. Um, and that's how some of those ultralight um, makers started off as cottage industries making their own kit. So you can buy Ray Jardine's book, for example, read that, make your own gear, hiking trainers, make your own um, rucksacks without lids on them. All that's great. That doesn't stop you from doing bushcraft. You know, that, and it, you know, just as much as somebody carrying an old canvas, you know, Norwegian rucksack, big heavy boots, um, you know, cotton, anorak, you know, the, 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 what they're wearing and what they're carrying their gear in is kind of irrelevant. The knowledge of the natural materials around them, the knowledge of how to navigate by natural signs of where to find water, how to light a fire, um, what you can make certain things out of if you need to make them, how to make cordage, where's the best place to camp, what are dangers with overhanging trees, what trees are likely to drop limbs, all of that is exactly the same whether you're wearing more traditional gear with more traditional heavyweight rucksacks made of canvas and leather or whether you're carrying ultra lightweight gossamer gear, go light stuff, the, the, the underlying bushcraft skills are the same. So I don't think you need to make a distinction. I think you need to choose your equipment. Going right back to previous questions today, previous questions in the past few weeks. Um, so we've had questions about sleeping bags today. We've had questions about tents and tarps and um, weight of those in the past as well and choices between tarps and we had a choice between the tarp and the tent, didn't we, last week or the week before. All of those questions are engineering questions. The core skill with fires, and knives, you know, making things from natural materials are the same whatever gear you're using, whether you're sleeping in a tent, under a tarp, makes no difference. And so I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people do carry gear that's too heavy. And that's why I started that Lightning the Load series on my YouTube channel a while ago, and it's on my blog as well. Um, unfortunately, I've just got waylaid. I haven't finished it. And I, one of my to-do list items is to get back into that. I've got some really good ideas aimed at people who are interested in bushcraft, who do need gear that is robust and resilient and hard wearing, that they can wear in the woods, they can use in the woods, that isn't gonna get trashed, because some, some of the really ultra lightweight gear that's great for walking trails um, isn't so good in the woods when you're abrading things more heavily, um, the wear patterns are different depending on what you're doing. So again, it's about specifying the gear that you want. But yes, there, are, there is a happy medium. There's a middle ground between the really heavyweight, leather-strapped, canvas, cotton, leather, heavy you know, gear 
and the ultra lightweight sort of gossamer crisp packet really thin stuff um, and I'm being a bit cliched about both but there's a happy medium in between where we can really reduce the weight of our packs and retain a lot of functionality and a lot of resilience and that's the area that I want to focus on with the rest of those videos as I did with the first one that was about sleeping kit I want to do some others um, you know, based on what I do on trips where I, I, I do need to maintain a lightweight um, pack, whether it's a portage pack for canoeing, whether it's a backpack for ski touring, whether it's a hiking pack for walking in the mountains in Scotland or further afield, I want to be able to maintain functionality, but it not be too heavy. Um, that's a happy middle ground that I, where I can bring my bushcraft perspective, my mountain leader perspective, my canoe leader perspective, my ski touring experience, all to bear in those different circumstances and give people some really good alternatives. Um, and I'm just sort of psyching myself up to finish those videos in the coming months. So if you want to hear about more about that stuff, drop me a, drop me a line in the comments underneath and let me know, thumbs up, vote, I for me finishing those um, that series good and I'll check out Andrew uh, Skirker in the meantime right let's move on quickly how do I know when I know enough <laughs> this is quite a deep philosophical question on one level um, this is from Arno Viesma and Arno has been in touch quite a few times. It's good to have a question from you, Arno, on the Ask Paul Kirtley show. This is via Twitter. And the question is, if I can... Hi, Paul. I like your show. Thank you. Um, how do I know when I have enough knowledge to go to the wilderness on my own? Well, on one level, you could just kind of laugh that question off um, if you were sort of arrogant and superficial, which, which I'm not. Um, and it, as I say, it is quite a deep philosophical question is how do we know when we know enough? Because particularly if we're practicing skills in a relatively benign environment and then we're going somewhere more testing, how do we know that we've trained hard enough? How do we know that we know the right range of skills? How do we know that we practice them well enough to apply them properly, um, efficiently and effectively in a real world situation? It's a very good question and it's a hard one to answer. But what I would say is, um, again, it's about specification to start off with. There isn't such a thing as a, we use this term wilderness very broadly and somewhat sloppily sometimes, and I'm not saying you're being sloppy, but we as a whole, we use the word wilderness for everything from um, tundra to taiga forest, boreal forest, to, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the deserts of, of Africa through to, um, you know, the steppe in South America, the Mongolian plains. There's lots of places that we call wilderness, but they're all very, very different. And so I think you have to define a little bit more carefully. And I'm sure in your own mind, you've got a place that you want to go. 
um, whether it's in Scandinavia or North America or Africa or Asia or in the mountains or in the forests or in the deserts or in the plains or it could be lakes, it could be seashores, um, it could be remote coastlines, but you've got somewhere you've got in mind as a wilderness that you want to visit and you want to you want to explore and you want to be comfortable in and you want to be capable in and i think first off you have to specify to yourself explicitly what, what where that is um, then you can think about okay well what resources are available there um, you know what tree species are common and widespread that i need to know that are useful to me and make sure that you have the skills to use them, whether it's for fire lighting or, or other things that you may need to do there. How do I find my way there? Can I, what natural navigation aids are there there? Are there any issues with using compasses in those places in terms of magnetic uh, variation? And all of these things that are gonna, uh, you know, make you be able to navigate properly or prevent you from navigating properly. Make sure you understand those things so that you can find your way there and back safely. Um, what are the hazards? Are there any animal hazards? Are there snakes? Are there, um, are there poisonous plants? Are there plants with contact poisons? So learn about the environment. And you, there's, you know, most places in the world, there are fantastic guidebooks that you can get hold of and you can start to learn about some of those things. Even if it's just general, you know, like East African plants or East African um, trees, you can, you can learn um, quite a lot just from learning, from, from reading those things. Um, you know, and there are basic skills which will serve you well wherever you go. Being able to light small stick fires, being able to light things with a fire steel, being able to make feather sticks, being able to um, un understand the motion of the sun and the moon and be able to navigate via them. All those things are widely applicable. Friction fire lighting by bow drill is a very widely applicable technique. Um, so all of these things um, you can apply wherever you're going but then you need to look at the specifics of the environment um, is it a particularly cold environment do you need specific knowledge about looking after yourself in the cold um, build build up a picture of what you need it might just be seasonal you might need certain skills in the summer different skills in the winter um, and then work on them do you need particular uh, craft in terms of in terms of personal skill sets in terms of movement do you need um, do you need to be able to paddle a canoe on rapids? Do you need to be able to ski? Do you need to be able to ski and pull a pulk? Do you need to be able to snowshoe? So learn those skills you, and you can learn, you can break it down so that you can do those things nearer to home or you can go on a lesser trip, like go out on a day trip by ski, go out on an overnight trip to a hut by ski, go out for a weekend trip by ski, go out for, and then go out and go on your week long hut to hut tour that you want to do in the wilderness you can build up that way the same same as anything so don't just if you're not used to hiking at all if you've never done any day hikes don't be thinking about doing a two-week hike into a really remote wilderness get your basic hiking skills up get get your basic physical fitness for the activity up and then build up build experience build fitness build resilience have a feedback loop for what equipment works, what equipment doesn't, and that is how you get good. So yes, if you ask, how can I prepare myself for wilderness in isolation? Here's you, here's this amorphous idea of wilderness. It, the gap seems very big, but if you break it down about what does that actually mean and what do I need to be able to do 
to in order to be comfortable in in order to look after myself in order to be able to get myself home safely again and then build on those skills and put those blocks in place one by one and then build up experience gradually iteratively you will get to a point where that gap is bridged and you will comfortably go into that environment and have an enjoyable time and if things do go wrong you'll have some skills to fall back on that will help you get out of there and always remember to tell somebody where you're going always tell somebody when you're going to be back and that is one of the most important things that you can do right canoe survival situation this is from andrew casey and it's from instagram and his question says hi paul and to all the ask paul curtly viewers i hope you're all well episode 26 got me thinking in regards to survival shows on tv survival shows are for entertainment and not education as you clearly answered in episode 26 so i wanted to give you a scenario which could happen and ask you to talk us through how you would deal with that situation so the scenario is you are out for a paddle with a friend and you each have your own canoe but midday somehow you get separated and whilst running some rapids you become separate from your canoe so i'm separated from my friend and then i'm separated from my boat is the way that i'm reading that andrew um and your equipment and equipment so all the equipment's left in the boat you're having a very bad day paul okay you reach the bank with everything you would have in your pockets that you would normally have on a trip like this for context let's say um, this is on the french river in canada in late august how would you deal with this situation and what would your priorities be um, I'm not a survivalist, nor do I wish to turn Ask Paul Kirtley into a survival show. I thought it would be interesting to hear about your response. Uh, uh, would be as a leading outdoor skills instructor and maybe educate people instead of giving sensationalist entertainment. Apologies for the long question. All the best. Right. So basically, I'm on a, I'm on a river in Canada with a friend. We're both paddling solo. We get separated um, and then... In paddling a, a rapid, um, I come out of my boat, I'm separated from my boat and my gear, I end up on the bank of the river with just what I'm wearing and what I have in my pockets and my buoyancy aid. So, um, and this was not intentional, going back to my last comment on Arno's question, tell somebody where you're going. Yep. Tell somebody where you're going and when to expect, when they should expect you back how long a margin they should give you before they do something about it and what to do when they need to do something about it. Um, that is probably one of the best pieces of survival information anybody can give anyone in this day and age. Um, knowing where you are um, is really, really important in terms of people being able to find you. Also, from your perspective, knowing that somebody's looking from, for you is psychologically very reassuring it also gives you a time frame in which to work if you know that you're expected back tomorrow but you're not going to get back tomorrow and they're going to wait 24 hours before raising the alarm you know you've got 48 hours before somebody starts looking for you on the route that you gave them so as long as you stay on have stayed on that route and are on that route they should find you within maybe three days potentially three or four days so that is you know that 72 hour 
scenario that we're talking about often, there you have it. So telling somebody where you were going. Now, of course, there is an argument for sometimes doing solo trips and not telling people where you're going because it takes you to that next level. And I would say for experienced people, that is something maybe to consider. But for most people, I would say telling somebody where you're going is a very sensible thing. Now, when I travel with clients in remote areas, I tend to travel with a uh, satellite phone and a GPS, but let's assume I don't have those and I can't call for help and tell somebody exactly where I am, um, which means I have to wait for somebody to come looking for me. I would always tell somebody where I'm going and therefore I will assume that somebody's um, going to come for me. And I often actually tell my, it's my mother is my backup that I tell um, that I'm off somewhere and that I will get in touch with her when I get back and if not, if she doesn't hear from me, then to alert these people and she has numbers to call. So um, I will be pretty sure that somebody would be looking because I'm pretty sure that my mum would make sure, even if it wasn't somebody local that was um, raising the alarm. So I would then be wanting to sit tight. But let me just say this, um, I have been in a very similar situation in the UK. Um, my friend uh, Ben and I were paddling a river and we went round a corner and we both took different routes down a rapid. Um, I came out of my boat and um, went down the rapid um, and out the bottom of the rapid with the boat. Um, I was following the boat, it was in the water upside down ahead of me, I was trying to get hold of it. Um, ben came out on the other side of the rapids and quickly made it to shore um, and I think with his boat uh, either hit shore slightly further down or he managed to pull it in with him or get to the shore and pull the rope. I was trying to do that, I was trying to get my swim line then swim to the shore but I couldn't quite make, I couldn't quite get it um, and in the end I made a dash for the bank and um, ended up on the bank quite quickly but my boat went off down the river. My boat um, disappeared off, floating off down this this little river um, not to be seen again for some time. Um, so I was wet. It was, I can't remember if it was uh, December or January, but it was around about that sort of time of year because we've done, we've done that river multiple times, often at that time of year. Um, it was cold. I was cold. I didn't have a dry suit on. This was quite a few years ago um, before I had as much canoeing equipment as I have and experience, I have to say, as I've got now. Um, I was cold, although I had buffalo gear on, I had thermals on, I was okay. I'm, I'm fairly warm as a person um, and I wasn't in the water for very long. So I got out the water. I went back up towards to see where Ben was. He was okay. He got back in his boat, paddled down the river in search of my boat. I jogged along um, the side of the river. It wasn't dense forest like it would be maybe in a wilderness. It was farmer's field. So I got over the fence. There was a public footpath there. I jogged along. So if we needed help, we could have found help, but we wanted to find my boat. My boat maybe went about a kilometre down the river and it was wedged under a willow tree on the far side of the river. Ben managed to get to it, um, break it uh, loose. I'd thrown a rope across to him. He got, my, he got that on my boat and we swung my boat over to my side of the river, um, got the boat turned over, got back in the boat. But that was a situation where two solo paddlers got separated. 
I ended up in the river on the bank, my boat had gone. Now, I would do exactly the same in the wilderness in the sense that I would try and locate my boat first. I wouldn't just sit down and go, right, I'm waiting for somebody. Like, my boat might be around the next corner, it might be pinned somewhere that I could get to. It may not be. If it was across the other side of a river and I wasn't happy to swim to it, I wouldn't take that risk. And if I couldn't see my friend in a boat that could maybe get to my boat, I would have to leave it. There's no point risking your life to get to something if you can't get to it. So there's a question there about whether or not you might be able to walk down the bank, find the boat and get to it and retrieve your kit, get changed and get on your way. Assuming that's not the case, then we have to wait either for my friend to find me I'm assuming my friend wouldn't just continue the journey, <laughs> finish and go, oh, where's Paul? You know, you, he would stop or he or she would stop and think, well, Paul's not with me. Where is he? But let's just that aside. Um, what would I do? Well, I would want to get uh, I would be wet um, end of August um, in that in that part of the world wouldn't be um, too cold during the day, potentially, although it could be a bit cold. It could be in the mid to low teens if it was raining and it might be cold at night so i would want to get a fire going um, i would get a relatively large fire going because even in the rain that would keep me dry i probably wouldn't have time to build much of a shelter the first thing i would do is get a fire going i always have a fire steel in my pocket and i have at least a um, a pocket knife um, that will work with a fire steel and i often carry uh, a and in that situ in that environment, I would carry um, in in Canada in the wilderness. I have a waterproof um, flask of matches in my buoyancy aid, as well as a few other bits and pieces. Um, not a lot, because if you have too much in the pockets, if you need to get back in your boat, it gets in the way. Um, but I have a few things in the buoyancy aid, and I have a sharpening stone, a cuts kit, um, a pocket knife, and a fire steel, um, as well as spare contact lenses, um, at least in my trouser pockets. Um, I'll often have I'll have a belt knife on in Canada and assuming that's still on I'd have a belt knife and a Laplander um, if we're doing white water I would have a rescue kit in a waterproof bum, ba bum bag on my back as well on the back of my uh, lower back and that would just have pulleys and tape in it and um, I often put a waterproof um, uh, bandage, Israeli bandage or similar in there that's in a waterproof case. So um, I'm confident that I'll be able to get a fire going either through using the natural materials that would be available. There's plenty of birch there, there's plenty of spruce, there's jack pine. I would get a fire going fairly easily but if I couldn't find something to drop a spark into I have the bandage that I could pull some of the cotton wool lining out of it, the, the fluff that up, drop a spark into that and get that going, get a fire going. Um, I would have some green material nearby, um, I'd gather that very quickly in case I needed to signal if somebody was flying over or somebody came with a boat and I need to send up smoke. I'd want lots of green uh, spruce um, and balsam fir would be the best material in that environment to put over the fire, put a good bundle of that, pile of that on the fire to send up lots of white smoke. It would eventually catch light. Um, I would get that very quickly. So I'd get the fire going, get the fire established, keep that going, um, get some firewood in next to it. Um, I'd get the green material there um, very, very quickly. I might then build a frame, like an A-frame that I could put over the top 
that would be a better way of getting material over the top for signalling than just chucking green material on top of the fire. But first off, I would do that. Um, with a fire going and established and plenty of material to keep it going and green material to um, signal, um, I would think uh, again about then uh, would I need a shelter? I might do, I might not. I wouldn't have a huge amount of time to build a shelter, but I would have a Laplander with me. I would have normally some sort of cordage. Um, one of the other things I tend to keep in a bit in my buoyancy aid um, and a bit in, uh, in a pocket is some paracord, but even assuming I didn't have any paracord, I'd have tape in the uh, rescue kit that I could use for lashing across, beam across and then make a lean-to type shelter would probably be the best shelter for that environment because there's plenty of spruce and pine, lots of long straight pieces that I could quickly make a shelter with so I just need to lash a cross piece across. There are ways of doing that without cordage um, but of course we could collect roots as well and that would that shallow root systems off um, off spruce or, or pine are easy to collect um, and you wouldn't need to do any processing you just need a long enough length lash it onto a tree lash it onto a tree other things you could do is use forks to hold a cross beam in place once you've got the cross beam in place put some rafters on the back put some more spruce on the back, lots of spruce thatching on the back, spruce bed on the inside, fire in front. Um, that's me protected from the environment. I'm able to signal, um, so that's my location sorted out. I know that somebody's looking for me. I would then think about maybe getting some water and that would be potentially an issue as I wouldn't have any means of boiling water on me. Um, so one of the good things to potentially carry with you in your buoyancy aid is some um, water purification tablets, but that's not going to be any good to you unless you've got a means of, um, of, of storing water. Um, but what I would be able to store water in um, maybe is um, the waterproof bum bag, but that does have a drainage hole uh, does it have a drainage hole in it, that one? Some of them have drainage holes in them, some of them don't. But if it had a drainage hole in it, I'd just have to bung it with something the best I could. Get some water in there, get some um, water purification tablets in there and let them do their job. Um, iodine would be the best thing to carry, although Giardia, it should kill Giardia most of the time as long as, the, long as it's not particularly resistant. Um, and that's what I would use in that circumstances. So portable aqua, little pot of that in the buoyancy aid. Um, and the other thing that you could carry, that I don't, I have to say, but some people do, is a reasonably robust um, plastic bag. Um, then they can put um, water in there and water purification tablets. That, that can be a good option, but I think I could use the bum bag for that. Um, failing that, um, I would have to go back to some sort of rock boiling methodology, um, which might be quite difficult in that sort of scenario. There are some rock kettles often that you can find down by the water, where the water has created, through the turbulence of the water, it's scoured away water and um, scoured away rock and left little rock pools and if you could heat some rocks in your fire pop them into one of those rock kettles which is a method that native peoples use sometimes for boiling um, you could bring the water up to boiling point that way and therefore you'd know that you had killed off any pathogenic organisms in there it might still not it might not taste great but you'd be less likely to give yourself um, a bad case of uh, of giardia 
in, in that scenario, in that environment. And then I would just make sure I wasn't getting too much sun if it was sunny. Um, again, the shelter would be useful for that. I'd make sure I'd keep my ears out for uh, a plane, so I wouldn't want to be sitting too close to lots of rapids and moving water because I wouldn't be able to hear people searching for me. I wouldn't be able to hear boat engines or plane engines. So again, in terms of where I would have sighted my shelter in the first place, it wouldn't have been right next to the river not a very good place to put a shelter anyway in case the water level rises which they can do on those remote rivers quite quickly sometimes so up away from the river um, less cold at night as well less damp at night and um, fire going there where i'd easily be seen at night under during the day green material lean to shelter try and get some water sorted and then i would just wait really and try and keep myself occupied um, try and keep myself positive and um, I wouldn't worry too much about food, although late August into, into September in that environment, there may be some berries around. The blueberries probably would have finished by then. They tend to be earlier in the summer. There might be some berries around. Um, I'm pretty good with the berries in that part of the world now, having been there for quite a few times in the last few years. There might be bunch berries around, which are not particularly tasty, but you can eat them. They're in the Cornus um, genus. They're in the dogwood family. Um, you could uh, possibly find things like Saskatoon berries, maybe some uh, what they call high bush cranberries in Canada, but uh, Viburnum opulus, which we would call uh, Gelder rose. They're pretty unpleasant tasting, but you can eat them. Um, and then, you know, rosacea stuff, you might find some wild uh, gooseberries, which I've found at, at times in that part of the world. Um, yeah, any any berries at that time of year that I would recognise, I would I would you know I'd happily eat. Um, there's quite a lot you can eat. Um, avoid the poison ivy and um, yeah, just hold fast until somebody came to find me. And you know, as well in some places you will see. You know, we're talking about the French River and parts of it are you know well travelled by fishing boats, other and pleasure boats, other time you know people out for the weekend in their boat to do some fishing or they have a cabin further up the river it's on multiple different levels so it depends where you would particularly talking about the french river it depends where you are some places you might be able to walk to a cabin or a lot or a cottage other places you might be quite a long way away from being able to get to help without any trails um, but if we're talking more generically, you know, where we go on the blood vein, for example, you're unlikely to see very many people there at all. You might get another group of paddlers coming through. You might get the occasional float plane fly over. You very occasionally see some fishing boats in some places not far away from. There's a couple of cottages on that river, a couple of cabins, but not many, given that it's a two week trip. You may, there's about one or two spots where you might see somebody. So it's unlikely you get anybody going past, but you might get a float plane going over. So you'd want to be ready to signal as soon as you could, which is why you'd want a good pile of green material and possibly a, fr a frame that you fill with that, that you can just eat a tripod that you could easily lift over the fire and you also want lots of small stuff that's going to burn quickly that's going to put a lot of heat underneath that and then i would and then i would wait keep myself warm minimize energy expenditure and uh, keep the water going in um, keep myself well hydrated and keep myself busy doing that and as i say i would be expecting somebody to be in the scenario that you talked about somebody to be coming to look for me within about 72 hours definitely 
Um, on some longer trips, if that happened to you early on in the trip and they weren't expecting you back for two weeks, you might be starting to get very hungry towards the end. You'd have to focus a bit more on, on finding food in the meantime, but that's the other variable there. But as I say, there is, there is some food there. You've got some fungi, you've got lichens and things like rock tripe you can start boiling up, but you'd have to have some means of boiling it. Again, that would be back to those, those rock kettle um, situations. So. That's, that's in a nutshell my thinking there without being in a specific place and having to actually do it, but th that would be the way that I would approach it. Protection from the environment, immediately that would be a fire and then I would make sure I could signal and then I would go back to making sure that I had a shelter and then I would make sure that I could produce water and then if I was there for any length of time I might start thinking about getting a bit of food, but hopefully somebody would come looking for me fairly quickly because I would have left a word. That's it, all right. Hopefully that helps. That brings us to the end. That's another long one. So I'm gonna sign off very, very quickly. Um, follow me on Instagram. Let me know if you want me to chop these in half and I will see you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Take care.